Did you know that you spend most of your waking life working, a jaw-dropping 90,000 hours for the average person? Now, I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of time thinking about work, planning work and, well, working. I have what you'd call a portfolio career, so that means a curated mix of projects and roles that all together add up to a working week. Now, this sounds good because I have autonomy, but it means I, I have more control over how, why and where I work, but I have to check in with myself pretty regularly to make sure I'm managing my time, energy and priorities and not overloading or under-delivering in all other areas of my life. Spoiler alert, I get it wrong a lot. My family will gladly testify. But what about you? Has the pandemic changed your relationship with work? Are you maybe at a career crossroads, feeling tired, unmotivated, a tad lost in your work life? Are you maybe experiencing burnout? Do you want to be more intentional about the role of work in your life so you can grow more joy and meaning in your career and make your work work for you? Well, I sat down recently to explore some of these questions with ABC broadcaster Lisa Leong, who, along with journalist Monique Ross, has spent a lot of time thinking and wondering and writing about work. They've recently co-authored a brilliant book called This Working Life, How to Navigate Your Career in Uncertain Times. And in this conversation on Human Cogs, Lisa and Mon share how being on the brink of burnout was the wake-up call that they each needed to change their relationship with work and themselves. In the chat, they reflect on their personal hard-won learnings and how they had to rethink unsustainable and pretty negative work habits to rebalance their work-life coherence, to do less, to gain more, and to harness their energy and superpowers to craft the careers they now truly love. There's stacks in this chat of really great practical advice to help you kickstart your career next steps, or at least help you to have a good hard look at how you currently spend your working life. Here's my chat with Lisa and Mon. So Lisa and Mon, I'm very excited to have the both of you on Human Cogs for our audience. It's a Sunday afternoon and it's a sunny, beautiful Melbourne day and we have been waiting to get together in a room for a while to chat about all the things you've been up to. This conversation's going to go wide and deep and up and down into lots of places and mainly we want to talk about managing energy and burnout and we know that's a big thing a lot of people are dealing with at the moment in a pandemic world. Lisa, I'm going to start by asking you, a lot of people would look in at your life, you're really, you're, you're a successful lawyer, you're a radio presenter now at the ABC, you're a recently published author, which we'll get to later. But there is this shadow side uh, and some moments in your life that were wake-up calls for you. And I wanted you to take us back firstly to a moment on a holiday uh, that you're on in 2012. So I was working as a high-powered executive and I knew I was high-powered because my calendar was chockers, had no breaks in it. I was flying around like a crazy woman and I had lots and lots of emails. So people may relate to this. And I just felt really busy, but I actually didn't feel like I was overly stressed, except that I was waking up at 3am in the morning and I just felt like I had so much to do that I couldn't get back to sleep, so I would start working. I thought, you know, I should really get some work-life balance, so I decided to train for an Olympic distance triathlon. (laughs) So I was running and I was swimming and I was, you know, cycling and then no surprise, take a holiday with the family and some family friends and the very first day I just got this pain in my side. They took me to the Indonesian doctor and 
lo and behold, I had shingles. And so this shingles is a rash. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but I thought it was some sort of medieval disease. Like I didn't even know what it was. It does sound like that. Shackles it doesn't and all yeah, that. Yeah, that's right. And I thought, oh, what is this that I've been stricken with? And so um, I actually got some treatment for that. And it wasn't just the shingles, but I got something called post-hepatic neuralgia, which is secondary nerve damage. And the doctor said at the time, whatever you do, don't Google post-hepatic neuralgia. So I went home and I Googled it and I found out that some people don't recover. Like this is not something that you're mucking around with because it's super painful. Like you get searing pain. It feels like your nerves are so raw that you can't, you just don't want clothes near you and I didn't want my daughter Billy to come and hug me. And so in that moment I actually thought I've really stuffed up. Like I might not go back to work. I thought I was ticking all the boxes of success. I thought I was doing a good job. I thought I was being a good mum and a really good corporate citizen. And what did I? Where did I go wrong? So that was my wake up call, Mads. That you know, what am I doing here? And luckily, my friend at the time said, "Hey, have you ever thought about mindfulness?" <laughs> and I said, "Nobody's got time for that." Uh, but I actually did go and do it. And through mindfulness, it actually helped with the physical pain. But more importantly, I learned how to be way more present. And so the feedback was, you know, you were so distracted and always doing a billion things and running on high octane that you weren't really ever there. It was like you're always five, you know, sort of days in the future And so it's so nice to have you back. And so I think that call, it's not just a physical thing for me. It was a physical and emotional coming home (laughs) in that moment to, yeah, just really reassess my life. And I really went back to zero in terms of rebuilding my life from there, Mads. Wow. So so your body literally said, enough, Uh, I'm done. I actually can't keep... Olympic triathlon training and and going at that level, is, and I is, reckon we get little clues along the way, Mads. You know, so were there red flags yeah, retrospectively? Absolutely. Did you think, well, hang on, uh, uh, I, I should have a, actually noted that thing. And in fact, I got some advice, which of course I ignored from a boss a long time ago, who said, "Hey, you just push really hard, Lise, and we're about to promote you into this leadership position, just to let you know that you can't just keep on running and falling over. You maybe because you're going to do this to the team as well. You need to manage, you know." this is my advice to you, if you can manage this energy so that you don't go really hard and then fall over because then you're sick for one month, two months, you know, chest infection, flu, everything else. And so I I just sort of ignored that and (laughs) just kept on because when you get in a pattern, you know, how do you break that pattern, Mads, when it works so well for you? Because I kept on getting promoted well, and also what are you being rewarded for? And so even though it sounds really unsustainable, the demands you are making of yourself, that, that ultimately that can't perpetuate. There's going to be some cost. And in your case, that, that was physical. And what I'm sad about is team members, you know, it wasn't just doing it to me, but it was the people around me, the team members that I was trying to, you know, bring up and then family and friends. So I think it's there's a high cost actually of that. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think we can we can... Uh, get get into that a bit more later. Mon, you had a different but similar experience of Wake Up Call. What was yours like? Yeah, I really got to the end of 2020. So I just started working from home. 
basically the same. I didn't get shingles, but my body just started to shut down. I got really fatigued. And I was actually scrolling on Instagram um, at night and I saw a little listy that said signs of burnout. And I was like, tick, 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 tick. I'm like, this is actually me. And I think I'd known it. I think I had known it for a really long time, but I just pushed it down. I think there's this thing with burnout that it kind of creeps up on you and it can come so slowly that by the time you realise it, you're kind of in it already and you're so burnt out that you don't have any energy to do anything about it. You know, it almost feels like running on a treadmill. And you know, if you go too fast on a treadmill, it's kind of scary to stop because you're like, I'm going to fall. That's how I felt. I'm like, oh my God, I'm so burnt out. Something needs to change, but oh, like I'm too burnt out to do anything about it. What were some of those signs? For me, it was a feeling of waking up in the morning, like I was already so exhausted, but the day hadn't actually begun yet. Um, Feeling really emotional, but disconnected at the same time, Um, but still pushing. Like I still wanted to do things. I didn't want to let anyone down. But yeah, just kind of completely detaching um, and, and losing that sense of joy, losing that meaning that I used to find. And around that time, I, I'm a huge fan of the poet Mary Oliver and I read one of her poems and it had a line in it that said, are you living just a little and calling it a life? And that really made me go, what is? what am I living for? Am I living to grind myself into the ground? And in 20 years, what's that going to be? So I knew, I knew I had to change something. And that was kind of my, I didn't have a moment, but I had like a, a realisation that I think I'd been having a lot of red flags and ignoring them mm. for ages. She's an amazing poet, actually, isn't she? Oh, Cuts to the her. essence mm. of humanity. Like, yes, uh, Devotions, I think, is, is her mm. great book of collected poems. So when you recognise that in, in that moment or you, or you saw, right, there's all these compounding, I can see the signs, What did you do then? What was the first thing that you did to shift yourself out of that? So I was very lucky because I was coming up on long service leave. The timing was, couldn't have been better. Um, And so I went on long service leave. I was like, I just need to remove myself. I had this feeling like I really wanted to leave my job. Um, I was working in the media. I'd been there for a long time. I had this feeling like I needed to go, but I thought I was so burnt out that I couldn't make the decision. Like I can't make a big life-changing decision in the middle of this burnout. Um, And in the middle of a pandemic. And in the middle of a pandemic, yes. (laughs) Nothing was normal. Um, So I took a little bit of time. I organised that to have that time. And then I started thinking really seriously about, okay, if I don't go back, what am I going to do? Like what does the alternative look like? And I was really trying to be quite mindful about not going into something else only to find myself in the same position again. Like I wanted to make sure that if I did make a big change, it was actually going to be meaningful change for my life and my kind of well-being. Let's jump back into that. Lisa, I wanted to tap into you again. So Olympic triathlons, you know, working, being elevated, Mm. celebrated, constantly pushed up mm. and up in your game. Why are you so driven to that level? Duh. 
I do love work, Mads. Like I love it. And so I get joy from it and it's such a feeling of I actually want to do it a lot and I get a lot of energy from it. And so why stop? I think is like ultimately how I feel about it. And so I really had to think about work in a different way. I can be doing work, but actually doing good work is about the ebbs and flows. So I have this image in my mind of a sideways eight now, and the sideways eight has interior on one side, and then you go through the loop and there's exterior on the other side. And I just sort of see my life more as uh, this ebb and flow you know, and I look at work that way. So I just make sure that I've got this flow in my life, which is the inhale and then the exhale. So exhale exterior. So that might be, you know, sort of interacting with others, doing a radio show or a podcast or an appearance and then inhale. So that's just a pause. And then that's when I sort of reset and come home. And then, you know, so I just have a way more yin and yang view of life and work life. And and is that energy flow? Is that how you think about that or? Yeah, it's nearly everything. So it can be energy flow. It could be just the way I look at my time in the day. It could be this sense of being present. So in every moment, just to have a check of, am I still in my body? Where is my body? (laughs) Because I was so separate from it. And that's why I didn't get those red flags, you know, those signals. Your body sends you very clear signals and it could be, hmm, here's a cold here's that chest infection that you think is a normal part of your life, that headache, you know, those little things that you kind of ignore because you're really busy. Well, now I pay attention and I think, oh, okay, that's my body just like, hey, Lise, remember me? Yeah. I'm part of you. And the, the body knows, yeah. The body definitely knows and I'm still not that great at tapping into things like intuition or my body, but I like practising and just reminding myself, oh, you know, oh, that's right, got a body. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so easy. I mean, I, I'm guilty of this. It's so easy to live in your head, to live your life, you know, being dominated and dictated by your, your thoughts, you know, um, and your planning and your cognitive restlessness, you know, the, the constancy of that, rather than anchoring yourself in, really in the present, you know, that present moment. Yeah, it's very easy to lose that when you're a busy person and, and there is a to-do list a mile long and, and yeah, to, to almost allow... Especially as an office worker, isn't it? And, you know, as a lawyer, we were kind of brains on sticks. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. the body is there to transport the brain that's doing all the work, right? But what we know is you, we are an embodied brain. So, you know, we're more than just the thing in our heads. And actually, if you want to be the best that you can be, not just for work, but for life, actually, you do need to integrate a lot better. You know, our minds, our brains, our bodies, our relationships, it's all connected. And I think that's, you know, the big thing for me is to remember that. And it's not that, oh, athletes, you know, they're physical, therefore they need to look after their bodies. No, as corporate athletes, we need to look after our bodies too and nurture and nourish as well. well and as humans, as as lovers, as mothers, as friends, as daughters, in all those roles, we actually need to nurture our hearts and our heads as well in order to show up as as humans who can give to other people too. So it's, yeah, it's not just what work demands of us, is it? It's actually just uh, as humans. Mon, when you, you know, were emerging out, you decided, right, I'm, I'm done, I'm burnt out, and you're like, what's next? How did you kind of 
audit, um, having been in the one career path for all that time, that's daunting to go, okay, what do I want to be next? How did you do that? You know, it's terrifying, but I had no other choice and that made it really easy. When I found, so I went into forest bathing, um, I kind of audited what I was doing with my time, you know, how I was voting with my feet. And I realised that I was happiest when I was outside. I found meaning in being outside. I always have. Um, And so I looked at, okay, maybe I can become a tour guide. Maybe I can do um, bush regeneration or become a park ranger and all these different things. Like I just was trying to maximise for my own happiness instead of something like maximising for uh, you know, success or money or any of those things. I'm like, I just want to be happy and, and feel like I have space in my life. And I found forest bathing and I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> so what is, is for those who are not familiar with forest bathing, um, what, what is it? What's the definition of it? So it's the basic definition is that you go outside into nature and you immerse yourself. So you bathe in just the atmosphere of the outside. Um, so you're not getting wet. You're not getting naked. Um, you're just being outside. And, you know, we were talking before about um, being in your body and, and just being more present. And that's really what forest bathing is. It's really about minimising those cognitive thinking and emphasising our senses. So just being there with no kind of agenda, no plan to go somewhere and going, oh, what can I smell or what can I touch and taste sometimes? What can I feel? And what can I hear? Just coming into your body and kind of listening to that. A really good thing even just to shut your eyes and slowly turn in a circle and just be, oh, what direction (laughs) does my body feel like going in right now? Like just completely letting your body take over that body radar, um, as we would call it. And then when you find that direction that feels good to you, you just open your eyes and just wander off until you find something that you're drawn to. Um, so that's what I do. I kind of help facilitate people to do that. Um, it, it's really hard for a lot of people because we do have this productivity bias and slowing down and resting without doing anything. You know, people have this thing of, oh, I'm resting, but I'm still being productive in my rest. Um, <laughs> and there's a big difference, I think, you know, between, oh, my resting is gardening and I, I'm really passionate about my garden, that's great. But when it becomes like, oh, I'm gardening as my rest and I'm going to win all these awards and, <laughs> you know, enter all these competitions, I think so many of us are wired mm. to still be productive yeah, in our rest. for reward or for a metric we can pull or to become an expert. Yeah. Like, yeah, rather than I suppose just being. Just being. Not doing but being. Yeah, and there's something really powerful in once you can – and I found it really hard, really, really hard. When I was doing my training, we were encouraged to go and do something called a sit spot. Um, Sit spot? Sit spot, um, which is just go find a place in nature and just sit for 20 minutes and don't do anything, be be part of the scenery. And, oh, my God, I found it so hard to just sit there for 20 minutes and not look at my phone. I'm like, I'm not doing anything. And it took me a couple of weeks to go, oh, I'm just being – And that's okay, you know. No one's going to come and punish me (laughs) because I didn't do something for 20 minutes. But it really took a long time to undo that conditioning. And get into, yeah, the habit of of that. Yeah, the unlearning, the undoing, when we're so wired in a certain way that that's so Mm. complex. Lisa, you do that on a Friday night, is that right? You do a... A tech Sabbath. Yeah, tell us what the tech Sabbath is. It's sort of a similar thing, right? It's sort of a sit spot, but... 
Yeah. yeah. So it's a way of um, having a piece of recovery and to really mark that. So we're borrowing the um, religious tradition of the Shabbat and we're taking that and making it secular and saying, well, what can we learn from this? And it's the fact that if you switch off from all of your devices, sundown Friday, and then you switch them on on Saturday, sundown, what sort of what would happen to our lives if we tried this as an experiment? And so I interviewed Casper de Kyle, who wrote a fabulous book about rituals, and it was about secular rituals. And so this is the one that I thought, look, I want to experiment, play, have some fun with. And so I actually tried it by myself, and I wasn't very good because I was cheating. And so I then enlisted our mutual friend, Penny Lacasso, and that was a lot better because then we had mutual accountability. And so we did it and we actually had a bit of fun with coming up with a ritual for it so we basically um, came up with the fact that we would dance to a song T- together you together when you do yeah, it all zoom except or- we were doing zoom <laughs> So using technology, we were just using to sign technology, and then, the technology. and then I'd say goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm signing off. And then I actually commissioned Little Green, a singer songwriter, to write a song as a surprise. And so there is a Friday night switch off tech Sabbath song that you play. It's beautiful, and you play the song, and then you've lit a candle, you blow out the candle, and then you switch off your devices. And I'm talking, put them away. So. Phone, laptop, not TV or... So TV we decided was okay, but you're not allowed to binge watch. And uh, Kindles are fine as well. So we're sort of playing around with, well, what are we trying to not do here? And it's the doom scrolling. It's that type of thing. It's definitely work emails. Emails, yeah. Definitely work emails. And to put them away because studies have shown that even just having your mobile phone present actually adds a layer of distraction and stress. So we just thought, hey, let's put them away. And do you know what I found, Mads? When I was reading or doing something, I noticed at first my hand used to twitch and it used to like reach for this phone that wasn't there. So I had a phantom phone twitch itch thing happening. And then after a while, you know, I would let it go. It was hard and it is hard, but I do definitely feel the difference when I do it. Now, it's a do, little Do bit you have notifications on or off usually when you have your Off, fo- actually, yeah. which annoys everyone else. But I'm just saying <laughs> because I don't have my notifications on anymore. And I'm quite good with having all of my social media on the second page of my phone. So I have little habits. Um, but this one is quite a big one. Now, I adjusted this year because I've changed and now I work on Sundays. So um, I need to be on my phone on Saturdays. So now I'm doing it on a Tuesday. So it's now a Tuesday Tech Sabbath. But actually it's working out fine. So I'm not that as popular as I thought. Nobody's trying to contact me on a Tuesday, <laughs> Mads. I don't know why. <laughs> what, are the, what are the habits, um, Mon, that you use then to manage yourself and your space so that you have got enough time to sit? Mm, I've had to be really um, intentional with this because even in my forest bathing, you know, I'm a small business owner now, so there is that pull that every second I could be doing something to further that and and I can feel that tendency of myself just getting pulled back into overwork. Um, I actually just schedule. um, Steph Clark, the wonderful Steph Clark, talks about scheduling and relaxing time and I just do that. I schedule in my diary. This is my sit spot time. I do it the same time every day. It becomes part of the routine 
um, which does make it easier. And I'm really, I try to be really intentional about sticking to that. Um, Like I'm not, you know, I don't never break it. (laughs) Like I'm human. Um, But there is, you know, it takes a lot for me to move out of that routine because it is so important to my health and wellbeing and my sense of, you know, connectedness with the world and with myself. Is that a morning routine or it's... It's an afternoon one now. It used to be morning. It's actually since having burnout, since kind of coming back my body clock, my work pattern has completely shifted. I used to be a very morning person. Like I would have told you a year ago that I do my best work at 5am and now I'm finding it's in the afternoon, Oh. which is really interesting. Mm. I've never been a sleeper in era. I'm always <laughs> up at the crack of dawn and I'm sleeping in now. I'm becoming more of a night owl. It's really interesting. Yeah. And I think potentially it's that I did shift work for such a long time in media, you know, starting at 3am or finishing at 2am. Um, so my body clock, this might be normal or it might just be a phase in returning to normal. Or, or your body, energy, circadian rhythm, all of those are shifting to your new work pattern, yeah. you know, which is interesting because, Lisa, you, you're um, – I know this because I, <laughs> yeah. I was at a conference with you and I know that you're – And I would tuck myself in bed at early PM. riser. You have a quite phenomenal morning routine. I do. And it did actually start because of that shingles episode. So when I was rebuilding, started to do more yin or, you know, those um, more mindful activities like yoga. And so I started building out my morning routine. Now, that was quite a while ago now, so about 10 years ago. So in the 10 years hence, I have grown this into some crazy morning routine that has about 10 things. And in COVID, it just went crazy. Because and is it lunchtime I by had, the time you yeah, finish exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. So I'd do my morning routine, be lunchtime, and then I'd start my evening routine at lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did through COVID. I don't think I did much work, to be honest. I was just doing my morning routine and my evening routine half the time. But um, so what it is, it does change because I'm the sort of person who's like, I might pick up something and think, oh, I want to try this. Experiment. At the moment, because I'm doing a bit of personal training with a trainer because apparently I have no muscles and I need some. So I'm developing muscles working with a trainer. So I need to do some foam rolling and, you know, I've done that in my morning routine. I still do a bit of Tai Chi. I have my butter coffee. I um, What else do I do? I'm doing this kind of Alexander technique, what I call a body scan, which I love, and that's a standing up scan, which is really good for voice work. So it actually a lot of um, musicians do Alexander Technique, a lot of people who work with their voice. Um, so I do that just before uh, and each And what day. do you do? Explain what you actually do. Yeah, so... Alexander technique is when you send directions kind of to your body just to align it again is the way I would describe it. So this is a very non-Alexander technique teacher way of saying it. So it would start with something like a direction to let my neck be free, let my head move forward and up, let my spine lengthen, widen, deepen. And then it's like I just go through my body, you know, my flock of ribs, letting it just ride the wave of the breath in and out. And then let it go down. Oh, there's, you know, my, let my pelvic blades just sit there and my hip bones, you know, go down to the knees, down to the floor and just ground myself, tripod feet, opposing forces. And so I'm just. So almost commands, but noticing the parts of your body that yes. are. So they're noticing again. And that's the body knowing what to do. And all I need to say is let my neck be free. And I can already feel just let 
go. I don't need to say, relax, relax now. So, yeah, and it's a really good practice and it does help me with my voice as well and making sure I don't lose it, you know, when I'm doing hours of talking. Because it's your livelihood and your craft, <laughs> being a radio chick. Um, wow, really interesting. And and so both of you have quite different ways that you manage your yourselves and your, your energy levels. And we are having a chat before we started <laughs> chatting, uh, chatting here around this idea of introvert and extrovert and acknowledging that there is an enormous spectrum and we what can slide around. But yeah, like, because um, it, it, it obviously feeds into it all of this, doesn't it? You know, how are you managing yourself? The world's coming in at you. You're putting stuff in the world. There's, you know, you're waking up, you're going to bed. So there's a lot of forces that are colliding in here. Yeah. How, how do you two, I don't know, where would you define yourselves if you had to on that? I mean, I'm definitely the introvert of the two. Um, I'm definitely that person who I love people. I love connecting with people, but I recharge my energy alone. And that is really that alone time every day becomes really important to me. Otherwise I just feel exhausted. And if you're not in the forest recharging, mm. what are you doing if you're just in an ordinary home? If I'm, I'm looking out the window, I'm still connecting. So I think there's this, you know, this myth that we have to be in a forest to connect with nature there's plants in the room we're in right now. I can look out the window and see, you know, the clouds in the sky, touch a rock, that kind of thing. I've often got a rock in my pocket. I'm a bit of a rock nerd um, and just kind of holding that and grounding with that is really nice. Like a rock as opposed to a crystal or yeah, something like that. Yeah, I quite yeah. like the dirtiness and earthiness of just a rock. Um, but I'm a weirdo. <laughs> see, I'm the introvert just sitting at home with my rocks. But, no, I think, and, you know, just a quiet cup of tea. You know, just having those little moments just to be kind of quiet (laughs) and just to kind of recharge I think is important for me. Who was that person who did that amazing TED Talk and book called Quiet? Uh, Susan Cain. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I'm talking about this thing. What about you, Lisa? Like where are you Hmm. at? Well, when I started looking at my career, whenever I was stuck in an airless, windowless room, whether it be in law when I was doing due diligence and having to sit there with lots of folders or even speaking to myself in an airless, windowless room known as radio... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when, you know, if you don't take callers and if you don't do interviews, you are actually by yourself. And I would come out of six hours of radio on a weekend and I would cry. So I'm quite extreme. I really need the energy of people. And so through COVID, look, I'm, I would either say I'm either an enlightened extrovert or an aged extrovert in the sense that I'm not as out as I used to be. So I certainly like my downtime and I need it, but I was missing people and I was missing the interaction. So I would kind of go wandering in the neighbourhood and just try and spot people. And from far away, I'd be like, g'day. (laughs) And, you know, sort of like over the fence, hi, (laughs) you know, start to get to know the neighbours. I would definitely go down to the local coffee shop and get a takeaway, you know, just to say g'day to people. So I knew everyone down the street and up the street and five kilometres away. Um, So in that sense, I am an extrovert. And did you know how we met? No. So we worked together, but we only did, we wrote one article together, me and Mon. So Mon was in the ABC and I was doing my show, This Working Life. And 
I just remember the energy when we came together and it was a really wonderful experience co-writing this one article. And so I was a bit cheeky because we were talking and Mon actually was still at the ABC when I was approached by the publisher to potentially write a book called This Working Life. And uh, at the end of the meeting, and we were talking about digital strategy, I said, look, I don't mean to be cheeky, but you're a really good writer. Do you like writing? And would you write a book with me? (laughs) Wow, that's like, we haven't dated, but do you want to get married? Yeah. 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 Like, And I said, yes, obviously. Did you? (laughs) She fully said yes straight away. Yes. And then I said, and then I got off the phone and I went and told my partner, I'm like, guess what just happened? I'm like, I'm not meant to tell anyone, but... I might write a book, <laughs> but I still didn't think it would happen. That was the thing. And now here we are. We've now got here we are. a book, the book sitting here in front of us, which you have just released called This Working Life, How to Navigate Your Career in Uncertain Times. So how long ago did you start working on the book together? Uh, we started in March. So about a year ago, about a year ago from idea to, well, since we really started writing um, a year. So the two of you come together, you think, yep, you can write. You've been doing the This Working Life um, podcast uh, and show on, on ABC. And so how do you go about this idea of you're very different people but have had similar, you know, experiences in part? How do you come together and collaborate when you're coming from quite different worlds? And I think this is so important. So we, even though it takes time to understand this, we wanted to start to help each other understand what strengths we were bringing to the writing of this book. And so we you, you've got to just start. So we started writing. We had a Google Doc that we used to actually write and sort of share ideas in and then have a crack at writing some things. And it became clear that Mon was very good at organising things. And, in fact, have you heard of a Gantt chart? I have, I have, but uh, G-A-N-T-T, explain what a Gantt chart is for those who are listening who have not heard what it is. Effectively, it's just a flow chart of you put a task in, so say chapter one, and then it, you know, and then from there, there's a little arrow and it's like all the tasks that you have to do to complete that before you can move on to the next task, chapter two. And so you can plug everything in. This one was beautiful. Because you could mark progress. Um, So I could get really carried away with being like, oh, I think we've written 1% of a book. (laughs) Right. And it's really important when you're going and doing a really big project like writing a book where you've got 20 chapters to write and you've got a really tight deadline and you've got two people working on it and an editor who's going to be looking at it as well. And so basically Mon one day sent me this Gantt chart, but instead of being terrified, I actually looked at it and went, I'm in safe hands. And, you know, it was just such a beautiful thing to feel, you know, in our relationship that, you know, mom was going to bring this amazing, amazing project management, but she's also really creative as well. And so the other thing that we thought about was, well, what is our voice in this book? And actually what I, I wanted to do was encourage Mon to bring the forest bathing nature guiding self into the book. And so you'll see in the book, we actually have that interior exterior, the flow is in the book. So every chapter, we start gently by saying, look, you know, actually, we're going to be guiding you through this. 
And at the end of each chapter, there is Mon's sit spot. It's this period where you get to sit and reflect. And she's written these beautiful sit spots, which completely capture um, that moment in the book. Yeah, amazing. And and what's the the book um, is for those who are looking. I mean, obviously, the pandemic's thrown the whole world into into flux and it's changed the way we work but also the way we live um who who's the book for and and what are the sorts of things that they could expect to discover for themselves or uncover through the book well, I'll tell you about how it originated as well. So Arwen Summers, who is uh, from Hardy Grant, she actually wrote me a LinkedIn message one day and it would have been in January, say, um, when we're in the middle of COVID and the show This Working Life was really resonating with people. And she said, look, I really love the show. I was just wondering if you ever thought about writing a book. Now, The show had been going for about two years and we always ask that question of why. Why are we working the way we work? You know, how are we working? And for two years it was going okay but there was always that response, you know, no, we can't remote work, that'll never work, you know, and all the reasons. Now, of course, through COVID, the questions became more profound and certainly more real. And so people started contacting us and saying, look, actually, I don't, I've lost my identity. I've lost my job. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know whether I want to be in this career anymore. And the show can do some things, but it definitely can't handle some of those deeper questions of actually, how do you navigate your own career? And so I think the purpose of this book is to go a little bit deeper and a little bit more personal and more individual and to say, hey, you're okay. And what we're going to do is we're just going to help you ask some good questions for yourself right now. So that's what this book is tending to do. It's much more intimate, it's individual, and it's for a person's career. So they can sort of tap into who they are and then how they want to place themselves into work. Do you think we hear this work-life balancing quite a lot? Um, yeah, what's your response to, to this idea of a work-life balance in respect of the book and what we've been speaking about? I think, look, work-life balance, we call it out in the book as being a bit of a myth, um, you know, because what is balance? Like, what does that actually mean? Is it the two sides kind of perfectly aligned? Like, you know, it, it doesn't, if you actually start to try and define it, it just seems like this mythical state and actually work is part of life. So this idea that we should somehow be separating them and teasing them out feels quite fraught. Um, so we kind of, we talked about this a lot, didn't we? Like we really brainstormed like what is the alternative and, you know, people talk about work-life integration, which is bringing those two sides closer together, but they're still two sides. Um, so we wanted to kind of really even just bring them into one and we came up with this idea of work-life coherence, um, which comes back to that, you know, sideways figure eight of everything mm. just flowing around and being part of the whole. And I think for me it taps into this idea that, you know, sometimes work is going to take priority. Sometimes you do need to put, you know, a lot into work and go really hard and, and you know, and that's great. Sometimes life needs to as well though. It's never going to be balanced, I don't think, but allowing yourself to flow between those different states and just recognising what coherence looks like. Like what does it look like when you're functioning at that optimal level, when you're happy and joyous and knowing how to 
claw it back when it starts to feel out of whack. Yeah, one of the things in uh, when I was reading through parts of the book and I was fortunate enough to chat to, to you and contribute some thoughts, hopefully they're useful, on uh, on how I work and I've had to try and make my work work for me as a you know working mum of four kids and working across different areas and so I have what you call a portfolio um, career mm-hmm. where you work across a number of different projects or businesses but it amounts to a working week um, but can have odd or more random hours. So it's not nine to five, mm. uh, but it's certainly, you know, working to my own rhythms, my own responsibilities um, and making sure uh, that I'm being accountable to managing my time, which can be a challenge. Um, one of the things um, that in, in the book is sort of talking about this idea that you deserve to feel joy at work, but not everybody has a job that's joyful. Some jobs are boring or, or menial. I mean, when you talk about joy at work, what do you mean by that for the average person who's looking for that? Mm, I think that's a really good point because there are so many people, you know, you're incredibly lucky if you have a job that you love, but that is, I think, few and far between. You know, some people, I think the most people get like bits of joy and then other bits where it's awful. And then for some people, it's just paying the bills. But I think there are moments that you can find where you can just bring a little bit of yourself into what you do. Um, Lisa actually has an amazing story working at Safeway, (laughs) which I think illustrates this beautifully. Uh, So I worked at a supermarket and I was a liquor assistant when I was 18 and 19. Uh, So this is when I was at university. Good age Yeah, Yeah. it was a great age. And I wasn't particularly talented actually as a liquor assistant, but sometimes they would allow me to get over, get on the loudspeaker in the supermarket and I'd be allowed to announce the red spot specials. So I'd be like, slabs walking out the door for twenty ninety nine. Get on people. And so it was quite a fun thing to do, have my voice booming across the supermarket. And I could literally see people like laughing and then chuckling and ha- have a spring in their step. And that sense of oh hang on like this is the part of my (laughs) job that I'm finding you know joy from and I think even when I was a lawyer you know I used to do things like MC Christmas parties client events do lots of presentations and so this concept um, which I now know is called job crafting where you take your job and you actually break it down and you could say there's different things that I can do to bring it more in line with who I am and that little sense of joy that you were talking about, if you just bring awareness to that, oh, actually when I did that thing, so for me it was giving presentations, it was being client-facing as a lawyer, how might I dial that up in my job? I love collaborating with other people, being an extrovert. How might I dial that up? That's relationship crafting. And then there's cognitive crafting. So when I actually have to go to work, what are the things that I can do in terms of my mindset to make me feel more joy at work? Is it just being grateful? <laughs> you know, is it thinking about my the contract that I'm drafting as a puzzle that I'm trying to do or that I'm actually trying to help my client do something? If I think of it and cognitively craft that, then maybe I won't be so sad sitting by myself mm. in an Ellis windowless office. Yeah, interesting, which um, again is this idea of noticing what's lighting you up. Yes. What, what are you moving toward, you know, and starting to look for patterns in that and say, actually, this small part of my job that I do, I freaking love it and I feel most alive and, and then I'm going to be good at that. In the book, you talk about the idea of the importance of empathy, you know, to craft your job. Explain that. What does it mean for you, Mon? 
For me, it is about just recognising that it's not all about me. I think <laughs> definitely in my career, I, I've found, you know, we all think we're the centre of our own worlds sometimes. And in my relationship, my relationships that I've had with other people are the joy in my work, um, especially in my media career. It has all been about that, those connections that I've made which has meant that, you know, I can take things quite personally um, and I can think, oh, they're doing this against me or I'm in competition with this person and having empathy, just kind of giving myself a moment to think about where they're coming from. It's actually grounds for beautiful connection for me um, and, and really deep connection because I can, I think it was Sarah Harden, the CEO of Hello Sunshine, who we spoke to for the book and she said, just look for the kindest and most generous interpretation of a situation. So if you feel like someone slighted you or, you know, they've, they didn't say hello to you in the tea room or whatever, like what's the kindest, most generous interpretation of that? That's, you know, empathy for me, I think, is just understand, like everyone's human. We're all coming at it from a very human place, especially in the pandemic. And just allowing for that, just allowing for that humanity in it all. I love that. And in a corporate setting, Mads, I think very often we forget and we think, oh, B2B, but we say, oh, what about H to H? Like if you need to execute any strategy or implement anything at work, you will be doing that with other people, like real people with their own hopes and dreams and their fears and their messiness. And when we forget that, uh, as we sometimes do at work, you know, that's when we lose that connection and we lose empathy. And so if you want to just live a full and brilliant life, you know, just to recognise that actually we're all just trying to make good in the world and this human-to-human -human connection, it is the answer, you know, isn't it? it absolutely. <laughs> and I think the, you know, humanising what it means to work because, sometimes work looks like you put on this suit or this cloak and you go and you be someone else. There's another persona that shows up in that corporate environment or in that building and then you go home and you start being yourself again. Mm. And maybe the pandemic, there was nowhere to hide. We were reduced to our humanity. We were all under a lot of pressure and we know, you know, there's a lot you know, of research that shows that that people, you know, uh, w w were showing up and they had to show up as they were like on a Zoom call. They had kids or dogs or the chaos of their lives in the background <laughs> and that, that actually it, it made us take those cloaks off and we had to work real. And we know there's a lot of companies as well like Atlassian and others who have had that as a, as a human first policy. Let's see who you are. What are your values? Who's the human mm. first before we start reducing you to the job that you do? And then... If you're even thinking, oh, empathy is not for me, think of a time when you've tried to pitch something, maybe to your manager, and you're thinking, look, I actually want to do something else. I want to work on this project. And you've gone in and you've just got a bad reaction. It's like not working for you. My compassionate challenge to you is to, instead of thinking of yourself in this um, scenario, what would it be like to actually think about how do you want this manager to feel, to think, and what would you like this manager to do as a result of your interaction where you would like them to put you, you know, to put your hand up for this project. And even just setting an intention and thinking about them, what do they actually need to achieve in their working lives? What does the organisation need to achieve? Can you align your needs with their needs 
And I feel that with that little bit of empathy and that little piece of connection, I think you'll be way more successful. So that was my compassionate challenge for anyone who thinks, ah, you know, compassion and empathy. Because I have had people reacting and saying, oh, next you'll be asking us to donate goats, Lisa Leong, when I've suggested that in a corporate meeting. But then how do we get the best, well, get the best out of ourselves? It sounds like you're trying to squeeze something out. But but that's ultimately what we all want to be accepted for who we are and to show up and do the best work or or have that best moment of our lives. And so it makes sense that we try and cultivate that and curate that and get closer to who we are so that we can then go out and do things in the world that are part of our story, Mm. isn't it? Like it's logical. It's just hard to do it if you're, you know, removed from that opportunity in the workplace because of the culture or because you haven't done the work yourself to um, get back closer to who you are, whether that's in a forest or, Mm. you know, wherever it is. So with this book, um, and it's an incredible book and it's got so much practical advice and um, I, I just love the way that you've written it. It's really accessible language. It's funny as well and lots of great case studies, I suppose, where you have interviewed incredible people to get their stories. What are some of the practical things if we, if for people listening who are really thinking, look, I'm working, I'm not really enjoying it, I, I want to switch because of the great resignation that we're seeing or are really starting to rethink their career, what are, what are some practical things that you can um, advise the audience who, who haven't yet read the book? Uh, well, one is a mindset thing that I think that we should share first, Mon, which is every day is lab day. Mm. I think it's a really good starting point, Mads. And the As reason- in we're not talking about Labradors? <laughs> no. Oh, I wish. <laughs> oh, every day is, every day is, is Labrador Lab day. day. Yeah. Be- Labradoodle. So what's Lab Day? Okay, so I did science and law. I was really quite terrible at science. I, in fact, had a lab evacuated when I was um, studying science because I didn't read the manual properly, get to the last page, there's a skull and crossbones, and it says all this experiment needs to be done in a fume cupboard. And so I looked over and black smoke's coming out of my experiment. And so I said, evacuate, evacuate. And so it got evacuated. And I became really famous on campus yeah, for doing that. Yeah, imagine you would. Yeah, I've been famous for a few things and that's one of them. And so I wasn't very good at the practical side, but I did get one thing and that is to bring a scientist mindset to life. And that says that, you have a hypothesis and you test it and when something fails, you are not the failure. Your experiment fails and it gives you really interesting data and that data says, oh, don't do that again. <laughs> but it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's actually a result that gives you more than if you had a successful experiment because it means you've got to keep on asking another question because you haven't reached the edge yet. So with that mindset, we apply that to our careers because as you may have noticed looking back Mads you do not know ever what you're doing and actually it's all an experiment and every time even if we agree to do a project that was terrible you learn never to do that again right and so you go oh okay I won't do that again Uh, I won't work with that person again (laughs) I love doing this I want to do more of that and so you're always tweaking like an experiment and it takes the pressure off. And so I do, you know, a lot of speeches to schools and to people who are just thinking, oh, will I get into the right course? And I go, you know what? Maybe that's the right course. You will never know. Just, just join do it. it. Just try it. Yeah. Just was, try it, was it Steve Jobs who said, who was probably a workaholic, um, <laughs> you can only join the dots looking backwards, yeah, right. not forwards. I think sometimes when you think about your career or what job or what's next, 
you know, you want to arrive already, but actually allowing yourself to experiment and have an open mind. What if? Yeah. yeah. And taking that pressure off, I think when we're, you know, thinking about our careers, especially kind of forward planning, it, the stakes feel so high. Like for, it's for me, when I was like, oh my God, I've left my career to go and do this thing that no one's ever heard about. And it sounds really woo-woo. Like, oh my God, what if I fail? Everyone's going to know. The stakes felt huge. But if it's just, oh, I've got a hypothesis that being in the forest is going to make me really happy (laughs) and it's going to make my life better. I'm going to test that hypothesis. That was way easier than going, you know, oh my God, this has to work out because it was just one little piece of data after another piece of data. What do you think um, is a useful thing from the book, Mon, that you would share? So the thing that I found really useful was doing something called a life flow exercise, which Lisa taught me and and kindly I created it mad through. But what I didn't realise at the time, I called it the happiness graph and I thought, oh, my God, I've invented something. And then I realised, like, this is a thing, like everyone does it. It's It's not a figure eight thing. No, so it's a life – some people call it the lifeline exercise. I originally called it the happiness graph. And we in the book call it the life flow exercise. And what is it? How do you do that? What would you call it? So it's a vertical line line. and then there's a horizontal line. (laughs) Thank you. Like an XY. Yes. Oh, XY. Yeah. XY. There you go, Santa. And along the bottom is the years (laughs) of your life. So you might do it in five-year lots or decades if, you know, we're a bit older. And then the vertical line is your happiness or your emotional highs and lows. And so you go through your life and you think, oh, what are the things that have happened to me? You know, the ups and downs of your life or the peaks and troughs of your life. And you map it all out. So your work stuff, but also family, any relationships, travel, like everything that feels memorable to you in your life. And you can go quite deep. Um, And then for each thing, you look for a moment of truth. So why was I so happy in that time? Like, what was it about that thing kind of beyond the surface level? Like, oh, I was overseas. Did you, what did you learn from doing your, because we put our life flow exercises in. in the book and we're talking all the peaks and the troughs and the messiness and. Mm. Yeah, we, which the, is part of the beauty of this book because yeah. it's not just this is how you, you do it, but let's have a look in at our lives and how messy and complex it got. And, and I think that's fantastic, that rawness of the humanity that you've brought to it. Mm. Yeah, so I, what did you reveal? I really learned how important it was for me personally to feel accepted as an individual. I've always felt like quite an outcast in my life from school, you know, uni. I've always felt a little bit on the fringe and all of those, you know, moments where I felt fantastic, they had this deeper underlying thing of like, I'm exactly as I am and I'm okay. And that was a really profound um, realisation for me. And, you know, I would take that going forward and into, well, the culture is really important for me, like the culture of where I work in the future, because I need to feel that I belong. And the people that I work with really matter to me because they make me feel belong. And I think it gave me an insight as well into that I really try and generate that for other people as well. So teams that I've led, um, I try and give them what I really want in a workplace, which is that sense of acceptance. It was powerful, powerful for me. I learned a lot about you from looking at your life flow exercise and working with you. Yeah, well, there is plenty to learn. And no, that's interesting, actually, you guys working so closely to pull this book together that you have unfurled oh. and revealed 
yourselves to each other uh, and maybe helped each other as well. Go, well, hang on, let's have a look in at that at that working life and, um, mm. yeah, and, and see who that human inside is. What an amazing project. What an amazing achievement to have this book in the world. Now, people can get this book from most good bookstores. It's been That's published right. through Hardy Grant and it's available now. So whiz out there and get your hands on a copy so that you can start to design the life you want. Um, a lot of this is about just being the human you want to be. And one of the things we always like to ask in these interviews um, to our guest is who do you think is doing human really well? You're not allowed to say each other, maybe. Oh, <laughs> or, or you can, or you can. Actually, I shouldn't put that caveat. So I'll ask you first, Mon, who do you think is doing human really well, whether that's in work or life spheres? Look, I think we all are. I think we... Like if you think about what it is to be human, that kind of messy, contradictory, um, you know, connected. I've I've been, I think it's the great gift of the pandemic is the way that we've all come together. Um, I read a beautiful thing the other day that was talking about how we are all in the same storm, but we are not all in the same boat. Um, you know, some of us are in boats, some of us are in sea kayaks or, um, you know, just kind of adrift. I'm on a hovercraft. Yeah. Yeah. I'm land-based, so I'm nowhere near you. (laughs) And, you know, I think a lot of people have really been just struggling to keep their head above water and it's been beautiful for me to see, you know, examples in my own street, my own neighbourhood of um, people who are in the boats coming down and helping the people who don't have anything. Um, So I think everyone, I think everyone who's hanging in, Still. I love that. We're all in the same storm but not in the same boat. What about you, Lise? Uh, who's doing human well? Only the people who listen to this podcast. <gasps> Anyone else, you are not doing human well. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, uh, thank you for... <laughs> Joining me, spruiking, that, that's excellent. Um, thank you so much for joining us to share your story of how this book came to be and who you both are in your journey to now. Um, it's amazing. Well done and get out there and thank you. seize your working lives. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com.